1: Welcome, investors and podcast listeners, to episode thirty-eight of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host Julian Klamochko, and I'm Mike Kesslering. Today is Friday, November first, twenty nineteen. Got an interesting episode this week. We're highlighting a number of uh, speculative deal situations, including uh, Fitbit which uh, media announced uh, earlier this week that they were in talks to be acquired by Google. That, of course, went definitive today. So we're gonna talk about how that uh, situation ended up and how merger speculators ended up doing on that pre-arbitrage situation. We're gonna chat about a uh, French luxury giant LVMH made a play for Tiffany & Co. Does this unsolicited proposal have a shot of success? can for, they struck a friendly deal at the same price as their previous unsolicited public offer. Why did the board settle and not push for a bump in the price? And lastly, we're gonna to touch on a bit of macro stuff. You had a rate cut in the US from the Fed and Bank of Canada held steady on rates. We had a big deal this week in the technology space with Fitbit agreeing to be acquired by Google in a friendly deal for $2.1 billion. The consideration is $7.35 cash per share. Now, this represents a premium of nearly 71% over the unaffected price. And I'm referring to the unaffected price here because earlier this week, there was a Reuters story uh, speculating, uh, basically breaking the story that Google and Fitbit were in discussions on a deal on that day, on Monday, Fitbit shares rallied 30% on that story, and so real um, su- successful trade for what we call uh, pre-ARB speculators, where they uh, get into the stock on some of these rumors prior to a definitive deal being announced. Some background on Fitbit. Obviously, they're the uh, smart watch maker, a real uh, innovator in the space. That is, until Apple came along and, and pretty much decimated their business. And you can tell from the historical performance of their stock price, they hadn't really done all that well. They IPO'd in 2015 at 20 bucks per share. Now they're getting taken out uh, at a 63% lower price than that at this $7.35 per share. Even though that 735 is a massive premium to where they were trading, you know, four dollars and change just one week ago. Nonetheless, uh, well-documented struggles in the smartwatch sector as Apple came to dominate. Past three quarterly reports of Fitbit saw their share price drop on average 14 percent. So certainly not meeting up to investors' uh, expectation in terms of financial performance. So somewhat of a mercy kill from Google here, although they are trying to further expand into the device and hardware business. It's uh, similar to Google's historical track record of acquisitions, they're a very acquisitive company and this $2.1 billion deal will be one of their biggest. It's certainly their biggest since they bought Nest in 2014 for $3.2 billion. And Nest does uh, smart electronics for the home such as thermostats, etc. Their biggest deal in fact was for Motorola in 2011 for $12.5 billion. Some strategic rationale behind uh, the deal, James Park, the co-founder and CEO of Fitbit, said Google was an ideal partner. And with Google's resources and global platform, Fitbit will be able to accelerate innovation in the wearables category, scale faster, and make health even more accessible to everyone. And that's really what you're starting to see, the emergence of wearables applied uh, to health. You're seeing Apple make a huge push into that space uh, with health monitoring and, and different ways of improving fitness and whatnot. Uh, but it's interesting to look at the deal here. It's uh, trading currently at a discount to the $7.35 price, uh, reflecting uh, about 90% uh, odds, implied odds of success of this deal closing. There is some deal risk, uh, obviously a ton of regulatory scrutiny behind Google's parent alphabet uh, with a lot of uh, political pressure, investigations, not just in uh, the US but also uh, the Eurozone. Uh, People and um, state and federal authorities, they're really concerned about anti-competitive practices related to consumer data and how they operate in the digital advertising market. So Google isn't really involved much in the smartwatch sector. They do manufacture uh, various devices, but uh, really not much market share in smartwatch or fitness trackers. So there really isn't much market share concern however most of the regulatory scrutiny will just be on uh you know google and alphabet in general and what they do with consumer data consumer health data specifically because i mean that is some of the most sensitive data out there not just that but location information as well which is uh another major concern nonetheless a really successful trade for pre-arb or deal speculators here with them getting in uh, after it surged 30% on Monday but the ones that did get in got another 20% bump today on the successful announcement of this deal. What are your thoughts on this interesting transaction here?
2: Yeah, so going back to the antitrust concerns, I think some of the some of the worry with uh, government officials and regulators is although this really, you know, as you mentioned, Google doesn't have much market share in the wearables market, um, but they're really looking at deals within this space through the lens of some of their past mistakes where, you know, looking back to Facebook now and their acquisition of Instagram. Now if that deal was announced today, that likely would get blocked by regulators. But with, you know, in hindsight, that looks like a really anti-competitive deal uh, Mm -hmm. that went through with Facebook. And so I think, you know, it, anything to do with any of these large tech companies are really going to be scrutinized by the regulators. And just an example of how that makes it difficult from a merger arbitrager is a look at the spreads based on different uh, close dates. So if you assume a December 2020 close, is the only guidance that they gave was that it was going to close in 2020, um, which is a very wide range, typically a company will say either H1 or H2 or Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4.
1: Right. Not a lot of visibility into how long the regulatory process will take to get this deal past the finish line. Absolutely. And so if you assume that
2: December 2020 close date, that's about a 2.7% spread as of uh, of close today. If it is quicker, let's say April 2020, that moves out to a 6.5% spread. So that really changes the dynamics of the risk reward scenario. Scenario right. Based on when you th- when your estimate of closing is right,
1: and so six point five percent annualized. Return yes,
2: yes, got. absolutely. And also, you know, you, one thing that you mentioned as well. Was with regards to the the uh, antitrust is there is a very large break fee in this deal. Now that's two hundred and fifty million dollars payable by Google. Uh, so it's actually a reverse break fee right. if they can't secure antitrust approval, which works out to about twelve percent of the deal value, which is which is massive and really doesn't have much precedent, does it?
1: Uh, it's certainly much, much higher than you typically see. And as the uh, target company, you gotta have comfort in that. Whereas the deal breaks, then you are, uh, if the deal breaks for uh, regulatory uh, issues such as a block by the FTC, uh, antitrust regulatory body, then at least uh, Fitbit gets compensated well. Uh, it is abnormal, but there are some precedents. Uh, we have talked about it on the podcast in the past, the AT&T and T-Mobile deal where that one, that merger was in fact blocked and AT&T had to compensate T-Mobile very, very handsomely and basically set T-Mobile on the path of success. Uh, I believe that break fee was roughly $4 billion or so. In addition, I remember being long the um, Google-Motorola deal spread in 2011, which was surprisingly volatile. Uh, and i say surprising because motorola was a you know cell phone manufacturer with some intellectual property and google really had no uh, n- no exposure to that space so no real market share concerns however the deal suffered from a number of regulatory delays and ultimately got approved However, that deal had a massive break fee, I believe, uh, in the billions of dollars in a $12.5 billion deal, and it was nearly 30% of the deal price. Now, here on this Fitbit deal, it's roughly 12% of the deal value, so um, very, very high, but certainly not uh, unprecedented, but it's a uh, one thing to notice, because there it is representative of uh, increased deal risk recognition by both sides of uh, of the transaction here, so that's interesting for investors to note that there is a little bit of risk behind this one, and with that risk, you might see this spread kind of jumping all over the place it won't be uh, won't be super steady it might be a little bit volatile so if you are an uh, arbitrager, long spread then uh, you know, get your seatbelt on and prepare for a ride. Another interesting and speculative pre-arbitrage situation emerged in the market this week with jewelry company Tiffany & Co. receiving an unsolicited takeover proposal from French luxury company LVMH. That's Moet, Hennessy, Louis Vuitton. So what happened here was LVMH, they proposed acquiring Tiffany at $120 in cash per share. And now this represented a premium of about 22% and a $14.5 billion deal of value so big deal for sure but then you look on the other side the the acquirer is uh, pretty massive they have a market value of 214 billion and it was built over the past four decades by its CEO uh, who also happens to be Europe's richest person it's an interesting story which uh, Mike you can get into he's actually built LVMH from a near-bankrupt French textile company to the world's largest luxury group. Their brands include uh, brands like Dior, Louis Vuitton, Sephora, interesting strategic rationale behind this. They're really just looking to continue that consolidation strategy in the luxury space that has worked so well for them and made their uh, CEO, Arnaud, um, you know, one of the richest in the world. And I think he has been uh, at the top of the rich list at some point, kind of trades between Bill Gates Jeff Bezos and the CEO of uh, LVMH here. The other thing to talk about is the price action here. So pre-bid, TIFF stock, uh, Tiffany, ticker TIF, it was just below a hundred bucks. Um, then you got this $120 cash proposal. It's actually trading at a premium. It rocketed as high as uh, 140 per share. Now it's trading around 126. Now what's happening here, basically pre merger speculators are uh, betting on a higher bid. I saw an analyst from Credit Suisse and Cowan saying Tiffany could be worth as much as 140 to 160 per share. So, certainly, some bullishness from the sell side, expecting a higher bid there. And media, they're saying that Tiffany is expected to reject this proposal and hold out for more cash. The board, I believe it's gonna say that the bid undervalues the company, but I mean, this is the same song and dance we tend to see on unsolicited proposals. And the way it works is, their first price is never the best price and the target companies know this. So it's the same song and dance where there's a starting bid, there's a counter offer, and then, you know, hopefully you settle somewhere in the middle. If the target is amenable to transacting and selling the company, which but mostly uh, most public companies are uh, at some point you face pretty significant deal pressure, not just that, but if you look at the trading in the shares, you're seeing massive volume on this deal speculation as more event-driven traders come into the stock and their goal is to get out of it quickly at a nice premium. So they would certainly like to see a a share sale at 140, 150, a friendly deal to LVMH. And so that's really what the play is here What are your thoughts on it?
2: Yeah, so as you'd mentioned, Arno, he's, yeah, the world globally, is the third richest person at 97 billion, um, so he's built himself a substantial wealth over these years, and I've, I've followed LVMH over the last number of years. It's, it's a very interesting company. They're really focused, not I wouldn't necessarily say just on shareholder value, but really just building these brands over the very, very long term. And when I say that, I mean generational, and that's how that's, this industry typically Works, um, but in terms of the strategic rationale for uh, this from LVMH's side is that this would really just be an expansion of their jewelry division, which is their smallest division. It includes uh, brands such as Bulgari, Hublot, uh, Tag. Um, I believe they're the brand. seat C- that division CEO is a former Tag uh, executive as well, and so the rationale with that is just really trying to diversify as right now, although this is a, a very large conglomerate, it includes many other brands that you had mentioned, it's really driven by Louis Vuitton in their fashion, fashion and designer segment where that, that segment drives about a quarter of their revenue and I believe almost 50% of their profits. So they're really tied to Louis Vuitton um, despite their large nature. And as well, this would also be another example of LVMH, although they are a global uh, conglomerate. This would be a further expansion into the US as Tiffany's, their most popular market, is the US. So it'd be a furtherance of that sort of strategy. Now moving more towards the potential bidding war Mm -hmm. and, you know, what could happen there. There, You know, this is really, Tiffany's is really viewed as a trophy asset as it's really one of the
1: only global luxury brands that isn't under family control, which is very important. Right. And shareholders, there's nothing like uh, music to the ears of an ARB as a bidding war can be. And so certainly, stock getting bid up on this. But nonetheless, it's still quite a bit below um, the price it hit just last summer, $140 a share in summer 2018. So people are thinking, look, it's not even at an all-time high. There's, you know, They've kind of been down in the, in the dump since then, uh, not met, met expectations uh, in terms of quarterly financial performance, but certainly some are taking a, a longer-term view of it. And the other interesting thing in terms of uh, dynamics, and it's something that I feel doesn't get spoken of very often is when there is this deal speculation and you see this big turnover in the stock where there's a massive amount of volume as shares go from long-term shareholders to more event-driven deal speculators, merge arbitrageurs, etc. And uh, many complain that, oh, you know, these people are just quick buck artists, they're just in it for, uh, you know, to get a quick premium and sell and they don't have the long-term interests. of the company like a longer-term shareholder, but you have to look at how did those event-driven traders get the stock in their hands. The way they do get the stock is by long-term shareholders choosing to monetize that, uh, take off the risk and exit uh, that long-term position, effectively agreeing with the thought that, look this is fair value, I want to exit. I no longer uh, believe that uh, you know, it's undervalued uh, and wanting to kind of crystallize that value. And so as, I don't think it's a, a fair criticism because the fact that those speculators or fast money traders get their hands on stock are representative that the long-term investors wanted to exit and are de-risking and are allowing these uh, pre-arb uh, deal speculators to take the risk in that situation. Certainly, and in terms of the bidding war, like who the
2: players could be other than LVMH, is you have Kering, uh, which is LVMH's largest competitor, and they are the owner of the Gucci brand, which, although LVMH is very reliant on the Louis Vuitton brand, uh, that is very much magnified with Kering, where Gucci, I forget the exact numbers, but they are very reliant on that brand to drive their profits. Um, But ultimately, looking at, at them, they would... It's speculated that they are not very keen on increasing their debt levels and getting into a bidding war. Uh, Another competitor, the the second largest competitor of LVMH, which is Richemont uh, and the owner of Cartier, uh, they're another possible acquirer, but they're still acquiring or they're still digesting an acquisition from last year and once again, not very interested in adding to their debt load, which is a very common theme across this space is very conservative balance sheets as these are thought many of the management teams in these businesses, treat them more as a family business as opposed to a corporation where leverage is something that is accepted.
1: Right, and the other thing that I wanted to discuss is you know what are we talking about here we're talking about a potential bidding war for a luxury goods maker near its all-time high this is something that does not happen at the bottom of the market so certainly this is a bull market indicator we recently saw a bid at a huge premium a friendly deal for sotheby's you know another sort of rich person uh, type stock that does well off the enormously wealthy an auction uh, for an auctioneer yeah and certainly uh You know, Tiffany's is no different where, um, you know, they're obviously related to the cycle of of the wealth getting, the wealthy getting wealthier. And how do they do that? Well, they do that through uh, the stock market doing well. Generally, uh, obviously, uh, economic. Uh, pro-cyclical type stock for sure and so you really got to step back and say you know what is this telling me you know it's certainly confirming that we are uh, I hate to say what inning of the bull market is I'm certainly not going to make that call but uh, certainly not near the lows that's for sure. Another speculative pre-arb situation turned a friendly deal. Uh, different dynamics on this one, though. What happened was forestry company Canfor agreed to a friendly $900 million acquisition by BC billionaire Jim Pattison at 16 bucks cash per share. Now, this represented the same price that he previously public publicly announced this past summer. What's different about this situation is typically when uh, someone comes out and announces an unsolicited proposal for a company, the board's job is to go out and improve upon that. At least that's what's expected. But the problem here is that Mr. Patterson already controlled Canfor by owning 51% of it. So it completely took away any potential competitive dynamic of a potential bidding war where someone else would come in if the company was in fact in play. Uh, The other dynamic here is that the forestry industry is just in a real slump. Uh, It's suffering from low pulp and lumber prices. It's been like that for a while, but I mean benchmark lumber prices have tumbled nearly 40% over the past 16 months. So some shareholders not too stoked on the price, even though it was a fairly massive premium, it's unaffected price was $8.80. So a $16 bid is uh, 80 something percent premium far larger than you'd normally see. But nonetheless, there's a 5% shareholder out there saying that it plans on voting against the offer despite this massive premium, saying that the premium to the prior closing price is based on a very depressed share price. So they think that they're getting taken out at a cyclical low. Uh, but. You look at the historical trading, and just in uh, June 2018, the stock was at 34 bucks a share. So it certainly has been crushed, and it seems like he is coming in with uh, you know a low-ball bid just based off a really depressed uh, share price off a sector that has been doing very poorly. The other thing that I wanted to note is that, uh, of course, they get a valuation here from an investment bank to justify uh, the board signing off on this deal. and. Greenhill uh, came in with a valuation 1424 to 1938, which is conveniently right around the 16 bucks per share. As we, you know, you know our attitude about uh, fairness, opinions, and valuations on stocks. Um, after both of us working as uh, the investment banking analysts, crunching these numbers, you're, it's, you're, it's kind of implied that. Uh, uh, for the bank to make five million bucks here, they pretty much build a model to justify that price. What are your thoughts on this uh, Canfor deal here?
2: Yeah, I don't have
1: too many comments. Although, as
2: as you mentioned, you know, with Letco um they own four point eight percent. They've announced their intention not to bid with uh, with management and the board on the deal. Um, the deal still does need a majority of the minority shareholders, so that will be an interesting dynamic to watch. As you, really, what what will happen now is uh, the Patterson Group and the rest of the board will be going to some of these other larger minority shareholders and trying to get an indication of which way they're going to bid. And if it seems like enough of them aren't going to be bidding with the deal, then they would likely have a small bump and that would likely be enough to take it over the finish line, so.
1: Right, we recently saw that on that Transat deal where Air Canada struck a friendly deal to acquire them. You had some shareholder pushback. Air Canada forced to bump by a material amount far more than expected. Interesting here is CAN for uh, when the proposal was made, traded to a near 16, but a decent discount. And so on the announcement of this friendly deal, uh, it ticked up a bit. Um, so you know a couple percent still at a discount to 16 so not really pricing in a bump uh, certainly no competitive dynamics here it's really hard to envision any sort of interloper especially when mr. Patterson controls 51% so it's interesting one to follow I think ultimately this point you just have 5% against uh, out of 50% minority not a huge pushback but we'll see how this one develops ultimately we think this one will get done so a lot of MA speculation some friendly deals happen. we have a bit of uh, macro news uh, on the rate side so you had what uh, what happened was the Federal Reserve came out with a rate cut this week as expected by the market so they cut by 25 basis points or 0.25% that's for the third time this year this took their benchmark interest rate to the target range of 1.5 to 1.75% but the interesting thing is that Fed chair Jay Powell indicated that this easing cycle is likely over thinking three rate cuts and that's it quote from jay powell he indicated we believe monetary policy is in a good place we see the current stance of of policy as likely to remain appropriate as long as incoming information about the economy remains broadly consistent with our outlook And just looking at the macro data, you had U.S. jobs numbers came in, beating expectations Unemployment still 3.6%, which is near uh, all-time low. Obviously, uh, unemployment rate is one of the the Fed's mandates. The other thing is uh, price stability, inflation, and that's also checking the box. We always joke that uh, the Fed's third mandate is S&P 500 targeting, and certainly the market loving it, with S&P 500 hitting new all-time highs. Uh, President Trump loving that tweet about um, new all-time highs in the stock market the other thing that we've seen on the macro front and why the Fed may be done here with respect to rate cuts perhaps a resolution of brexit which was a major concern it's looking like a brexit deal is gonna happen and the other thing is some relieving of the pressure on the trade front side you have US and China and this potential phase one deal that they're expected to enter into uh, potentially this month So, a lot going on there. Meanwhile, up in Canada, Bank of Canada, uh, holding rates steady at 1.75%, which, interesting enough, um, they now have the highest official interest rate in the world's advanced economies, Uh, it's above the Fed's rate for the first time in three years, but in contrast to the Fed, who kind of indicated that they may be done cutting rates, um, the Bank of Canada certainly did introduce what market participants believe to be an easing bias, meaning that they believe that uh, the Bank of Canada (laughs) may be preparing the market for a potential insurance cut. Uh, It's branded an insurance cut just to, uh, you know, get the rate down maybe one or two cuts, not a full on easing cycle, but uh, one or two rate cuts to get the uh, inverted yield curve to not be inverted anymore and just, you know, placate the market such that uh, it's happy and really follow pretty much every other central bank in the world in cutting rates. Um, Basically, the Bank of Canada is worried that the U.S.-China trade uncertainties persist, which could end up damaging the Canadian economy, but they also need to balance this on uh, what they perceive to be over-levered balance sheets of Canadian consumers and a potentially overheated uh, housing market, which they don't want to stoke that fire and get home prices rising unsustainably again. So he's kind of in the middle of the road here. Uh, The market's actually starting to Increase the odds of a potential Bank of Canada rate decision rate cut later this year. Traders now see, seeing about 30% chance of a quarter point cut from the Bank of Canada in December, which is their next rate setting decision date. And this is up from 13% uh, the day before they came out with this rate decision this week. But certainly SP 500, NASDAQ, Dow Jones all hitting new highs, loving that Federal Reserve rate cut. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, so in terms of, you know, whether wh- I guess going back to why the BOC hasn't been cutting while the Fed has is part of that has to do with really the FX rate is that the Central Bank in Canada is very uh, cautious with regards to any changes that they think would affect the FX rate just because of Canada's reliance on exports, particularly to the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you haven't seen the U- the CAD run against the USD, there really hasn't been any reason to cut. Right. Um, but now with the Fed funds rate going below uh, the BOC overnight rate. Um, there there is more potential for for that but you really haven't seen it in the in the spot rates yet
1: right and the the way those dynamics work is if canada's a higher yielding currency with higher rates then investors will want to buy that currency bid it up and you see that effect on the currency rates and as the canadian dollar's appreciating then exporters will suffer and then uh you know you'll see that come through the uh negative economic figures Absolutely. Um, but you are correct in, you know, your interpretation of Polo's is, uh,
2: his his language in in terms of the decision is it really does seem like they have left the door open for a rate cut in the not too distant future. But I think one of the main things to watch will be the FX rate. You also mentioned the, that they really are worried about the effects on consumer debt levels, both with, with regards to debt levels on the personal side as well as mortgages. So that's something that the BOC is monitoring and are really wanting to ensure that the impact uh, doesn't have any unintended. impacts.
1: Yeah, you bring up an interesting point on the FX side, because the Bank of Canada doesn't admit it, but I I believe, given their historical actions, that they keep a very close eye on the FX, and they are certainly not scared to whip out that shotgun and blast that loony out of the sky as it starts to rally. And I think you saw that this week, because the uh, loony was approaching uh, highs for the year vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar. It was the uh, best-performing currency best performing developed market currency of the year, I believe, and I think they're getting nervous on that. That's why they came out with this sort of dovish hold uh, language and potential, potentially introducing the chance of a rate cut later this year or early next year, just to get that uh, currency down and put speculators on notice that they're really not having any of that uh, currency appreciation because they want the economy to remain competitive and hence you saw that in the price action. I believe the loonie was down uh, nearly 80 basis points on the date uh, in which Paul has made this announcement. But nonetheless, uh, Canada on hold for now, US cutting and potentially done with rate cuts for this cycle. But uh, certainly markets liking it. TSX not quite at a new all-time high, but U.S. markets are loving it as they hit all-time highs. And that's all we got for you on episode 38 of the Absolute Return podcast. If you liked it, you can always check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. Until next week, we will chat with you soon. Cheers.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.